I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. You are listening to Missed Apex Podcast. We live... F1. Welcome to Missed Apex Podcast, an independent Formula One podcast that aims to bring you a race review before your Monday morning commute and a wide array of F1 subject matter experts that cover every aspect of F1 from racing to politics, tech, news and business. I'm your host, Richard Spanners Ready, and I'm joined by Matt to Rumpets. How's it going there, Matt? Oh, it's going pretty well. I have to admit, I'm a little peaked because yet another high school tour for the daughter. But overall, doing pretty good. Well, while we're keeping it relevant, Matt, I need to apologize. Yesterday, in high spirits, Mr. Joe Saywood uh, gave me the odd beep to chuck in here and there. And I missed one. And it was a mild one. However, I will apologize to any parents who had to explain to curious toddlers yet what that word meant, daddy uh, or mummy. So uh, the second apology is to you, Mr. Trumpets. You gave me a link to your Indiegogo campaign. Uh, You gave it to me three minutes before the start of the show, though, and I was unable to uh, share that with our listeners. So why don't you tell them quickly what you're doing and where they can find it? Well, it's very simple. Me and my trio are going to be making an album full of music and jazz originals and standards and well it turns out that's an expensive thing to do so we're trying to raise some money you can hit me up at igg.me at nightscape or you can just search for matt raxdale and the city line trio on indiegogo and if you can afford something please give us something and if you can't we'd be delighted if you just share the link with friends or people who might be able to I said short trumpets. Now you're getting in the way of the fact that, again, Missed Apex Podcast is joined in the shed by former Lotus F1 CEO, Matthew Carter. Matthew, delighted to have you back again. Good to be here. Good to be here. Now, last time we obviously didn't seem like major idiots, so at least you were motivated to come back and speak to us again. But we're not experts, certainly, and I'm hoping that you might be able to give us a bit of a primer, if you don't mind, to the power play and dynamics in Formula One. Would you judge me if I said that I still got confused between FIA, FOM, Strategy Group, CIA, etc.? Not at all. No, it it is very confusing. And yes, I can try and give you my understanding of it. So um, FOM, uh, which is, is, well, it's not actually called FOM anymore, but that was essentially Bernie's uh, company. They are the people that own the the commercial rights holder and they're the people that basically run the sport. But the rules for the sport are decided by the FIA. So the FIA decide the rules. FOM basically put on the event itself. Um, and the strategy group is made up of FIA, FOM, and the top six teams uh, that, that make up the, the sport. Oh, that's interesting. So the FOM, which I kind of didn't realise had gone by the wayside, is now Liberty Media. Exactly. I, well, it's not gone by the wayside. They bought it. I think they changed the name to Formula One Management, 
it's actually formula with the number one as instead of FOM, Formula One Management. Oh. So it's not gone by the wayside, but that was Bernie's, that was Bernie's company. All this time, FOM stood for Formula One Management. I'm sure Trumpets knew. I didn't know that. Uh, yeah, actually, I kind of did. <laughs> uh, so that's it. That's it. And and for anything to actually, for the for any rules or anything to affect the sport, it effectively goes through those three entities in some way, shape or form. The amount of say that the teams have is less than the FIA and FOM. Um, but essentially, they all have to agree to to get something through, and that's why it becomes so difficult to to make any of these rules stick, as far as I can make out. Well, it would seem like, based on the numbers, that if FOM and FIA stick together, the teams will never get what they want. Essentially, yes. And um, it, it it's been interesting because we've seen um, speaking of FOM and speaking of Bernie, we've seen some hand grenades lobby lobbed in the direction of the new owners of FOM, uh, specifically about the interesting stock option arrangement that the FIA had uh, when um, when CVC uh, redid the deal, I think was it back in 2013 or 2014 with the new regulations and the new deals, uh, yeah. because they essentially owned part of the sport. And that was maybe kind of not entirely kosher uh, with the European Union, the earlier decision that led to the split of FOM and FIA. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not sure how much detail you want me to go into. I mean, they, I don't think it was not kosher in any way. Um, it all depends on where you draw lines and you draw boundaries. My understanding is the amount of stock options that they had was very small. Um, it's kind of the, the whole reason for the split was was one entity running the sport and one entity making rules for the sport. Um, so they were trying to put a Chinese wall between the two. That's where they are. I mean, I, I don't, as I say, I don't think you could say it's not kosher because clearly they, I don't think they've done anything illegal. It, it's hard for people to realize exactly how much Bernie did do. I know he got a lot of slack, a lot of pelters thrown at him consistently, but he really did do a hell of a job keeping all those people, all those relevant parties going in the same direction. And the announcement from Ferrari that's the kind of thing that the announcement from Ferrari just the other day, that's the kind of thing that Bernie used to keep under control. Um, ah. Or how he did it. How, I mean, it was, I mean, there's always the famous Bernie um, divide and conquer. Um, you know, you keep the teams fighting against each other and then they're going to be more likely to, to side with him, et cetera, et cetera. But he was an absolutely, he was the best person I've ever seen sat around a table for negotiating, for keeping people going in the right direction, for keeping the sport on track, for keeping all these huge egos in check. And I mean, Sergio Marchione, the guy who's taken over at Ferrari, is a, is a big ego. Um, and you stick him around a table with the likes of Helmut Marco and uh, the people from Mercedes represented by Toto. And all three of them want something different. And all three of them are pulling in different directions. Um, it's going to be hard to get to get anything passed. And that's why when the proposals came out earlier in the week, or was at the end of last week, they are proposals. And instantly you saw Toto, Cyril from Renault and Ferrari come out and say they're not happy with the, the, with, with the proposals. And that's the kind of thing that Bernie had to deal with constantly. And you've constantly got the fans, the consumers of the sport saying that they want things changed, they want louder engines. But then you've got the manufacturers saying that louder engines don't quantify to what they want to put on the road. So therefore, they're in this, you know, as I think I said last week, they're in this sport to uh, sell cars. You know, Renault, uh, Mercedes, they're not in the sport because they particularly want to be F1. Well, they, I mean, they want to be F1 champions, but they want to sell cars. You know, they want people to buy their product. So any relevance between what's going on on a racetrack and what's going on on the road is going to help them to sell their cars. It's fascinating what you say about Bernie Eccleston behind the scenes. Obviously, you would have dealt with him on a more day-to-day basis. All we ever really saw was the sound bites. And when a journalist stuck their microphone in front of Bernie Eccleston, he would either give very little away or he would do this almost, you know, doddering old man act like, oh, you know, don't look at the man behind the curtain. You know, I'm barely involved in in the decisions. I don't know what's going on. You know, a, a very wily fox. Absolutely, one of the wiliest, I would say. He's, uh, yeah, honestly, he was a he was a, a genius. He re- he really was. And <laughs> no, I'm not shy in coming forward and saying that. And I think there's a lot of people in Formula One that think the same thing. And you have to realise that the sport is where the sport is today because of Bernie. If it wasn't for him, we wouldn't be where we are today. And you know, as you know, as I said, you know, the decisions come out and people jump up and down and they say they want louder engines and they want. 
I don't, I don't, even, I don't even know what, what other stuff they said they wanted. They want the teams at the back. I think Bernie came out, was it yesterday or today, where he said that the teams at the back will, will always be at the back, no matter what cost cap is put in. Um, yeah, I, I think his, pretty much he said, I've always said, if you can't afford to spend, this is not the sport for you. You should yeah. move on and make room for someone who can. Oh, he, that, he did say he did say some ridiculous things. I think I, I seem to remember him saying the thing about Rolex. Did he not say that if you can't afford to buy a Rolex, you shouldn't be watching the sport or something? So, there, I mean, there are some things that he says that are unedited and they just come out there. But his point about the cost cap, um, and I'm sure, I mean, we can we can go on to that. I mean, I sat on the strategy group for two years where they constantly talked about a cost cap, but it's almost impossible to to police it or to oversee it. Uh, Red Bull, for example. I'm, both set up separate companies so you've got red bull technologies you've got mclaren technologies does the cost cap you know does it apply to those those companies you know can they employ someone through those companies and therefore the wages go through the technical company and it's not through the f1 company so it's really really difficult to to try and curb spending because they're always going to find a loophole and spend it somewhere else uh, yeah, we'll come to cost caps very, very soon. We were expecting an announcement today. I don't think it's come. However, with the wide crew we have on the panel, Matt, and the expertise available to us, I'm sure we can speculate wildly on what we might hear from said announcement. Uh, but just staying with Bernie, I mean, the fact that he says ridiculous things, I think that might be a feature, not a bug, in that if he throws out enough noise you're kind of diverted from trying to work out what he really wants. Because I remember once just it was randomly interviewed by Ted Kravitz and he said, what about the future of the British Grand Prix? And he said, us Brits aren't selfish, are we? We don't mind missing out on a British Grand Prix every now and then if the rest of the world can get a Grand Prix. And then he just walked off. Uh, Things like that are just, they betray a sense of humour and a coping mechanism for the constant barrage of questioning. Plus, also, there's there's always a background to what he's saying. There's all there's he is, as I say, he's cleverer than he lets on. I mean, I don't know if he's clever than he lets on. He's he's a very <laughs> clever guy, and whatever he says, there's there's a reason behind it. And that particular story, I am sure he was in the middle of negotiations with Silverstone over a new deal. Um, Silverstone is saying there's no way we can't have a British Grand Prix. So if a soundbite goes out there that Bernie Eccleston's saying we can live without a British Grand Prix, then it makes his negotiating position all that all that stronger. So last one on Bernie. Forgive me, but he's a fascinating character within uh, Formula One. So what would make the difference then if if Bernie had announced this proposal? Would he have been having background chats uh, going on before and after it to make sure that the likes of Marchioni and Wolf weren't coming out and openly criticising it? Or was it an atmosphere of fear? You know, what's the difference between now and, uh, you know, this sort of more free flow of information with Liberty Media? Well, interestingly, I I think if Bernie had been in position today, I don't think the proposals would have come out. I don't think that used to happen. I don't think they came out as these are our proposals until they'd been discussed with the teams. They'd been discussed and checked and everyone knew. I mean, Toto's interview, he almost came out and said, I don't know why they've released this because it's not been discussed with us. Um, So that seems to me that Liberty are trying to and again, I don't know, I said, kept saying this last week, my opinion, it would appear that Liberty are trying to plough their own furrow a little bit. Um, and if they're trying to throw out there, these are our proposals to make the fans happy without talking to the teams, then you can understand the reaction from Ferrari, Mercedes and, yeah. and Renault to a lesser extent. I mean, it's also a fantastic way to get your opponent, if you like, around the negotiating table to give away their position. You can come out with a much more extreme version of, of what you want, let them react and then seem like the reasonable party meeting them halfway. Yes. Yeah. Good. <laughs> uh, Matt, uh, some speculation about the cost cap then. Let's go there. We were expecting an announcement. In fact, I would go as far as to say you promised me an announcement. And that is why we scheduled Matthew Carter to come on today. You've let me down, trumpets. Well, the meeting happened. <laughs> it was happening today. It was a strategy group meeting that we were just discussing. It was to happen today where Liberty was to present its cost cap proposal. And we know um, from news articles written that it was very much a cost cap proposal and it was not discussing the dividing up of revenue, which I think we'll have to wait until the new regulations come because and this is, you could actually uh, tell me, because prior to 2013, we had the Concord Agreement, where the teams, the FIA and and um, FOM, all agreed together. Post that, they tried to do another Concord, but then they wound up with bilateral agreements. Now, I might be wrong in terms of the years, because I, I, didn't, I didn't look at this ahead of time. 
And I'm thinking that those all expire in 2020 or 2021. 2020 is, is my understanding of when the new agreements all, all kick in. So um, anything to do with revenue, then, they couldn't really change until those agreements have expired. Uh, yes, that's my understanding, yeah. Um, because I, I think when the agreements were signed, and obviously I haven't seen all the agreements, but when Ferrari, Mercedes, and latterly Renault, when they came back in, when they signed their agreements to come back into the sport to stay till 2020, it was with certain caveats and certain agreements. And I think that they are all linked around the, the, the distribution of the funds, of the income. So at the moment, I mean, Joe was loudly shouting it at me yesterday. Ferrari gets seventy million pounds, euros, space bucks, whatever. Additionally, as part of a you know traditional agreement, that aren't we lucky to have Ferrari here? Is there any realistic way in which we can keep Ferrari in the sport and then not have this massive prize revenue advantage? Um, I'm not sure. To be perfectly honest, I mean, I I don't know what Joe said yesterday. Um, I mean, Ferrari don't market themselves anywhere other than Formula One. That is their marketing tool. Um, so if they pull out of Formula One, they effectively are not marketing their cars anywhere. Um, if they pull out of Formula One, does it affect Formula One? My personal opinion is yes, it would do, and that was Bernie's opinion as well. Um, Bernie genuinely felt that without without a red, without the scarlet. I mean, you go. When you go to the races all over the world, you know, the amount of red that you see everywhere, into and out of the circuit, around the stands, everywhere, it's incredible. They have a huge following. Um, and I don't know. I don't know if Ferrari weren't racing, would all those people dressed in red be dressed in orange for McLaren or would they be dressed in orange for Max Verstappen? I, I, I don't know. But if if they're all there just purely to see the Ferraris go around, then the, the numbers of people that turn out at the actual events would fall dramatically. Okay, okay Matt, yep. Yeah, well, I was, gonna, I was just going to make this point, and this, this has always been a thing that amazed me. You get paid, I don't know about over there, when we get paid, we get paid, and then if you're with a company long enough, you also get like a seniority bonus. Mm-hmm. And doesn't this Ferrari payment essentially amount to like a very massive seniority bonus? Because they've been in the sport far longer than anybody else. Absolutely, that's exactly what that's it. And they all they all get they all the big teams all get an amount of extra money. Um, and, and I mean that's known. I don't you know I'm, I'm sure Joe will have talked about it yesterday. But so Williams get an amount for being in the sport for so long. Mercedes get an amount for winning X number of world championships. McLaren get an amount extra for winning X number of world championships. It was the lowly teams like when at Lotus that you, you, know, you didn't get anything. You just got a split of the, the TV rights and you got um, some money for where you finished the season before. All these historical extra payments have all been negotiated at some point over the past however many years by somebody at Ferrari, Mercedes. I think Red Bull were on an, an extra payment for winning X number of world championships in a row. Um, so they've all got, everyone there has their own little individual deal. It was a big... It was almost a big stumbling block when Renault bought Lotus back. Right, during this my was what I was going to ask you, yeah. Because they, they wanted their historic payment to continue. They wanted them not to be seen as a new team, for them to be seen as the same team that had just been through many different guises. Um, now, I wasn't, again, I wasn't party to the actual negotiations between Bernie and Renault and, and how, it all, uh, how it all panned out. But I believe that they were given that, that they were given some sort of a historic payment um, and some sort of... Uh, incentive for want of a better word to to come into the sport as a manufacturer because the other thing you have to remember is it costs so much money for these big teams to to go racing um for them to make the engines and this is the point that toto is making again i think is that the amount of money they've invested into this current iteration of engine is huge and for someone from liberty just to wander in and say yeah the fans have said they want louder engines so we'll ditch that and we'll go back to where we were i mean it's you know it's they can't, well, they can do it, but even from Mercedes, it's a huge number. Well, I mean, even worse, if we bring it back to cost caps and they say, okay, we're going to impose a limit you can spend overall and we'll impose a limit on what you can spend on engines, which effectively reduces the price of what Mercedes can charge for an engine. And that might not reflect what they've poured into investing in re- research and development. Uh, you know, is that a stumbling block to cost caps? <laughs> There's so many stumbling blocks to cost caps. I mean, I, as I say, I sat two years and listened to them try and fight every single angle that they could for cost caps and the teams complain and, and move left, right and centre to stop it. 
Right. So the whole point uh, uh, of the cost caps, as I understand it, is to try and institute some more sporting fairness, i.e. to make the playing field between the smaller teams and the bigger teams. And I think Patty Lowe made this uh, point very eloquently. He said the real, first of all, Formula One's not broken. It's in pretty good shape. But if there is an issue, it's you've got exactly three teams competing for the podium. And everybody else is literally in a different race. And he felt like that was an issue that did need to be addressed. And it seems like the cost cap was a method, not the only one, but a method that Liberty or or FOM wanted to institute. So let me run through what they're proposing. And I'd be very curious to get your eight, if you were still running a team the size of the one that you ran, how you would feel about that as a competitor. And B, if you were trying to achieve that, and you and you think, as I'm getting, maybe that this may not be the best way to go about it, what would you suggest instead? So what what we know is they're proposing that the amount of money is fixed. It's not the total amount of employees, total amount of parts. There's going to be a fixed budget for the team, and it's not going to include drivers, management, or, interestingly enough, marketing. Uh, they're going to try it in 2019. And uh, each team will have an independent accountant paid for by the FIA. And amount-wise, it's going to be somewhere, I think the teams are hoping for $200 million, and I've heard as low as $100 million mentioned. And it seems to be that the big thing right now is they're saying it's around $50 million a second of lap time between the teams. And depending upon the regulations on the engine and the regulations on the chassis side, they're hoping they're saying that if it only is going to mean like two or three tenths per 50 million, then it might be more around the 150 million mark. But it doesn't really matter. Um, the question is, if you were a midfield team, would you be happy about that? Would that make your life easier or or would you be thinking that this is not a good thing? OK, so there's lots of different questions in that. So to start with, Matt does if that. a cost cap of a cost cap of 200 million is ridiculous because load there's probably only three teams that spend more than 200 million. So while I was at Lotus, if we had a cost cap of 200 million, it would make no difference because we didn't have 200 million. Um, so, I mean, our turnover at Lotus was around about 110, 120 um, average over the, over the three years that I was there. Um, so a cost cap of 200 million is, is pointless. I mean, all that's going to do is affect the big teams. Um, and also by taking the driver's wages out, the drivers and the managers' wages out. I mean, again, that's that's ridiculous. So it's 200 million plus the 40 or 50 million that Lewis gets paid, plus the 40 or 50 that they're going to pay to another driver. So therefore, you're up to 250, 260. Well, the whole bottom two-thirds of the uh, championship, nowhere near that amount of money. So that's pointless. Then if they come in, if they came in and they brought a cost cap in at 100 million and they really did police it the way they say they're going to police it, well, then what happens to the people at Mercedes, Ferrari, Renault? You know, the, the amount of money they've invested to get to where they are and the people that they've got. Don't forget, you put that, that cost cap in. They're going to have to lay off two-thirds of their staff. And I'm sure as people that are watching the Grand Prix, yeah. you know, we not, don't necessarily give a monkeys about that. But, you know, as a person running a team, all of a sudden you're having to lay off two-thirds of your work staff. Some of them may have been there for an awfully long amount of time. Well, how much is that going to cost? You know, you've got to pay redundancy to these yep. people. You've got to pay people, people that are on huge wages as well. I mean, there's big, big wages in Formula One, especially in the big teams, um, because all the all the talent radiates towards the big teams. Um, I mean, we didn't touch on it last time, but I mean, when I went into Lotus, we just lost. We talked about Eric Boulier leaving and going to McLaren, but um, James Allison left just before I arrived as well. Now, those two were two guys were effectively were running the team, if you like, on the on race day. Both of them drifted away. So, uh, so they, they left. They, they left and they subbed you in. So you were doing the jobs of James Allison and Eric Boulier. Again, as, as we guy. talked about last week, not exactly. <laughs> yeah, there's a technical director that got pushed up. And, but yes, but effectively, what I'm trying to say is that there's um, it. Cost caps are so hard to put in place, and you're always going to end up upsetting somebody somewhere. Um, I mean, we at Enstone at Lotus, we had our own little issues in that um, they talked about customer cars, which I'm, I'm not sure if that's on the list of proposals you've got there as well, which is effectively almost what Hass is. So you buy in your, you know, they they reduce the number, the amount of parts that um, you're allowed to buy in from outside. So at the moment, the chassis 
big parts of the suspension, big parts of the bodywork have to be your own design. They can't be borrowed from another team. So the minute you start loosening the, the, the rules on that, then effectively there's no – what's the point in – a big issue that we had when I was at Lotus was we, we, we always made we always made our own gearbox. So we had a gearbox department, we had a gearbox area in the in the factory, and we always made our own gearbox. Well, if you can go and buy in a Mercedes gearbox, it's going to be better than we could make at Enstone, for sure, because they've mm-hmm. got more people doing it. They've they, and they they marry it up to the engine better, et cetera, et cetera. So the minute you start reducing the parts that you can and you can't make, then it starts to become less and less interesting for a, for yeah. a company or, or someone to participate because you end up going into dare i say an indy or a, a nascar or a formula e where all the cars look the same and you know they okay the racing might be a little bit closer but effectively you know the whole point is the the twin pronged nose that we talked about last year the blown diffusers the bits of aero that they add onto the cars yes. that's the whole point yeah. of formula one yeah, it's an engineering sport. It's an engineering challenge. And we don't want to see that diluted. And by the way, guys, you want to just check out the live stream and see the passion oozing from a former uh, F1 boss. And we can really see that we talk about these things. We speculate it. I, I can see in your face that you you lived this. You lived these frustrations and challenges. It- it's fantastic to see. Um, but we often talk about franchises and customer teams. So do you feel like that customer teams would be you know, ripping the soul out of Formula One? Uh, yes, to an extent. I mean, it, it's again, nothing, nothing is black and white. So you talk about customer teams, you talk about, so we were a Renault engine for the, my first year in charge. And then we went to a Mercedes engine with a Mercedes engine. The contract said that we had parity with, um, with Mercedes. And? However, there was a, there was a caveat in that paragraph that said that any upgrades would always go to the silver arrows first. So yeah. they could effectively test them out. And there was never a period where it said, you'll get it the very next race, or you'll get it the race after that, or you'll get it on your third iteration of engine in this year or whatever. So we always knew that we weren't on parity. And that's that's quite an interesting thing, because, and it's why Ron Dennis went the route that he went with McLaren. And now that he's left, they appear to have gone back to a route. I mean, so do you, and this is, a, this is an honest question, and I don't know the answer, if and when Renault get Enstone back up and running and they are fighting at the front of the of the grid, are they going to allow a Renault engine car to beat them week after week? Would Mercedes allow a Force India <laughs> to beat them week after week? And exactly, you're shaking your heads, and that is the answer that, that we all know is true. And that, um, I guess that's led to a lot of the tension with Red Bull and Renault at the moment, is that you know on, on pound-for-pound performance at the moment, you'd fancy Red Bull and probably McLaren to beat Renault, and that's not going to look good. Yeah, absolutely. But having said that, Renault Renault are rebuilding, as we all know, um, and I don't know when they rebuild, how far they'll go, and where they'll get to. But you know, I can foresee there being a day when there's a decision to be made. I mean, I know we on the notes beforehand we were talking about Spa 2015. Yes, very very interesting, very very interesting little story at the end of that race. So at the end of the race. Spa 2015, for those who don't remember out there, was where we scored a podium as Lotus, as lowly Lotus with no money whatsoever. Roman managed to get a podium for us. Who could forget so, that? Sebastian Vettel tried to do a one-stopper and his tyre blew eventually. He may be over-ambitious. Grosjean says he would have got that podium anyway. A fantastic day for you guys. So what I was going to say was towards the end of the race, we were running in fourth place. So when you've got a Mercedes engine or you've got a Renault engine or you've got any engine, you have all the technicians from that company sitting in the back of your garage and they're constantly observing everything that's going on with the engine, what settings to be in, what modes to be in, et cetera, et cetera. We're running fourth. They didn't want Sebastian Vettel particularly to get podium in Spa and they could see that Roman on newer tyres was catching him. So they gave us a different engine mode to go into. So Roman came in at the end of that race and said the car had never driven the way that it drove in those last, whatever it was, 10, 15 laps of the race. So I was like, okay, well, what what was different? And it it makes sense. So the minute that your car is going faster, your aero is working better, the tires are better, you don't have to brake as late, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So every part of the car works better because he was in this mode. Mercedes never told us what it was. They they told us there was no different whatsoever. Roman was saying to me, "No way, that car that car drove differently." Is that common Um, knowledge? Because that's that's the first time hearing of it. No, it's not common knowledge. 
That's this is an exclusive for your little podcast. My, oh, Big well, podcast. Well, well, let's go for medium and let's save all our blushes. Um, but that, that's absolutely incredible. I, I don't want you to drift past that because one of the questions I was going to ask you when you were talking about engine parity was, did you ever get a sight of these engine modes? And obviously that's answered that question. Uh, and, uh, no, you know, no. bully on Roman. So you for, don't, so you don't. Yeah, yeah, sorry. So, you, you, but you don't, you don't get you, the. the I, I, mean, I don't know how much of this is known, but so the the engine arrives at the circuit. So we arrive with the car, and the engine arrives. Mercedes put the engine in the car. The technicians that are allocated to our team. We race for the weekend. At the end of the weekend, they take the engine out, and it disappears back to Stuttgart. We never, we don't see the engine. We don't, you know, they 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 give us all the FIA have all the serial numbers off the engine to make sure that the, the you know that you're only using four engines in the season or five engines or whatever the rule may be in that year, but you don't see that engine never comes back to Enstone. We never get to look at it and play with it, or even the fuel, the um, the lubricants in the engine, everything is supplied by Mercedes um, and Petronas. Um, so yeah, it's you don't yeah. see it. So the races following Spa. I kept saying to Mercedes, what's that engine mode? Can we have that engine mode? And they were like, oh, no, no, no. It's, uh, it was specific to Spa. It was specific to X, Y, and Z. Um, but no, we never saw it again. So how much they had in hand, I don't know. I'm sure they could sit there and say that, you know, they didn't want to dump the reliability of the engine or they didn't want to overstress the engine or whatever. But um, there's the often talked about qualifying mode yeah. that uh, Mercedes have in Q3. Well, rarely we got to q3 but occasionally when we did again we would get an extra setting on the dials which would would put the engine into a different mode so james funnel in the chat room is summing up exactly how i'm feeling which is wait what wow uh and that is instantly minding me of valtteri bottas um this year in baku when he was trying to get past stroll for second place and all of a sudden you know, over the radio, they said, you know, can you give me everything? And suddenly, out of nowhere, he was able to outdrag Stroll to the line. Have you got any idea what, what technically is happening when they're able to do that? Uh, it appears that Matt does. I was going to ask, did, your, um, did, did you happen to notice a certain insufficiency of oil in your oil tank <laughs> when you got that particular car back? Were you, like, close no, to the FIA? No, because they take the engine out. <laughs> I, I think it's it's more to do, and again, it depends how technical you want to go down this route. It's more to do with the deployment of the um, electrical engine versus the the the, the, norm, the the normally aspirated engine. It's it's the way they build up and they store their energy and then they deploy it. Um, and I think we talked briefly last week about it with the Renault engine. Um, it was completely different the way that the energy was deployed with the Mercedes engine. Uh, with the Renault engine, there was much more that the driver had to do. And I appreciate that we had the Renault engine in 2014, which was the first year of this, this yeah. iteration of engine. So maybe Mercedes moved on, but I don't think they did. I think they always had much, much more built into their engine, much more circuit-specific built into their engine, whereas Renault, it was... We had to tell Roman Pasta to change dials constantly when they were going around. You remember the pictures of uh, Pasta driving off the track because he was fiddling with his In steering China. wheel and yes. he was going around the corner. Yeah, um, yeah. He didn't come off looking amazing was, from that, to be fair. No, but that was. I mean, we 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 digress slightly and we head off straight down into a, into a different little cul-de-sac, which is my belief that engines are so so important. I mean. Yeah. That was the reason that I moved from, I specifically was the one that championed the move from Renault to Mercedes because it was clear that Mercedes was so, such a much better engine. Now, we as lowly little Lotus with no money whatsoever, with Roman and Pasta as our drivers, Roman's a great driver, but you know, he's not a Lewis Hamilton or a Sebastian Vettel. And with him and Pasta Maldonado, you know, we really, really challenged in when you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. 
Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact? You can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. 2015, we were better than Force India. We were in a ding-dong battle with Force India all the way through to the end of the season. They just picked us at the end. But we were basically a, a quicker car than, than the Force India with the same engine. Um, and we scored some great, you know, other than the podium. I mean, I remember here in Montreal in 2015, I think we were fifth and sixth on the grid, um, which was incredible for us, for, for that team with very, very little development money. Um, you know, again, we talked about it last week, the amount of developments that we could we could bring to the car compared to many, many of the other teams was, was nothing like. Anything that we brought to the car had to be checked, double-checked, quadruple-checked. We had to make sure it was going to work because we couldn't afford to put things on the car that weren't going to work. Um, so with all that, with two, I'll say one good driver, one not so good driver, um, with the with the limited amount of money and budget that we had, we still managed to really challenge. Um, and my honest belief is it was all down to the engine. It mm. was all down to that engine and the different settings and the different power modes that we had. So when people talk about it, again, I'll, I'll shut up in a minute. No, but don't, if I, don't, um, don't. Don't you when dare. People, when people talk about Williams and people talk about the fact that Williams is amazing, and Williams, in my opinion, Williams were lucky that they had that Mercedes engine in 2014. Oh, you know, yeah. we to, I had to put up with the flak because Pastor Maldonado left Williams to come to Lotus because he wanted to come to a competitive team. And we talked about it last week. When he came his first race, he qualified 22nd. Um, and I think Williams in that first race in Australia, were they on the podium? I can't remember. Only McLaren were on the podium, but Williams did very well because they had that Mercedes engine. Um, so, you know, Williams were essentially fairly, I believe, fairly lucky that they had that Mercedes engine at the start and both Williams and Force India have spent the last three years with that Mercedes engine, getting to know it, getting to understand it, learning, learning from the technicians that are in the back of the garage. We had one season and we really, really changed. You know, our fortunes mm -hmm. changed massively just on the back of that one season. So when you talk about the effect of an engine and the effect, it's, my opinion in this current era, it's huge. Yeah. And it's, also, it's, it's huge, but also, as I said earlier, I'm not sure that Mercedes would let a Mercedes-powered car beat them. Well, here's, you know, with what you're saying uh, about how much you guys have benefited, it's not unfair to say your ambition is different to McLaren. So if you're a Lotus team and you're challenging Force India, that's fantastic for you. So uh, it, that switch has been amazing. But for McLaren, who have championship ambitions, it now from what you're saying, seems less uh, less crazy what Ron Dennis was doing. And ultimately, obviously, the gamble with Honda didn't work out. But if they wanted to win the championship, they absolutely 100% had to get away from Mercedes. Absolutely. So, I, I mean, I, I worked with Ron for six months last year, and um, we talked about it a lot. And he had to. He was with, he was with Mercedes-Benz. They were the best engine coming into 2014. It was clear. But he knew... There was no way Mercedes <laughs> was going to let him win. So would he be happy with the odd podium, you know, coming second, third, fourth in the Constructors' Championship? No, he wouldn't because he's Ron Dennis and they're McLaren. Um, and if you ever go anywhere near their factory, that is unbelievable. I mean, it's I would if anyone ever gets the chance to go there, it's incredible. But um, he knew that he wanted to get back to the top. And if he wanted to get back to the top, he needed to be supplied with an engine that Either they were the only people supplied with the engine, or certainly they were going to be the number one people supplied with the engine. And I think that's why Vita, I think he vetoed Honda supplying or even talking to Red Bull, I think, last year, um, because he wanted to be the only team that had the Honda engine. Yeah. Wow. Sorry. I'm, I'm just sitting here as a listener, to be honest, uh, uh, Matthew. Uh, absolutely blown away from that. Uh, James Funnel is saying Williams qualified ninth and tenth on that first episode and also the chat room. Yeah, but where did they finish? But where did they, where did they finish? Because uh, I, I'm, I'm, I know, I know McLaren definitely were on the podium with um, Magnussen. And he wasn't was there a disqualification sure. that race as well? Didn't one of the Red Bulls get disqualified for ah, the fuel flow? Fuel, fuel flow. flow. There we go. 
that's okay. Yeah, yeah. It was it was Ricciardo, right? He won the race and then was disqualified, and it turned out Red Bull had been altering their fuel flow meters, and then eventually FIA released a technical directive and said, "You can't do that." Yeah, they had the flexible pipe after the fuel flow meter. That's uh, yeah, it's insane. But I, I remember as a kid um, hearing about. Um, the influence Ferrari had over, say, Sauber. And uh, I think it might have been before Blue Flags when a Sauber mysteriously got out of the way of a, a Ferrari car and held up another car. And just hearing you kind of talk about Mercedes issuing an order to give another team an engine mode to help against their direct rival, all those people with tinfoil hats uh, that we've demanded tear them up and throw them in the bin, they can go to the waste paper basket and give themselves a nice a nice nice head cover uh made out of aluminium foil because these things really do happen i mean it's it's obvious isn't it i mean it's it would happen in any sport i think i mean mercedes are supplying us with an engine you know we're paying mercedes um a lot of money um you know mercedes have got their own drivers in a lot of the smaller teams now i mean you don't think that if uh ocon who pays ocon's wages um yeah so yeah. so if so if a mercedes is coming up behind a force india you know who where's where does esteban ocon's loyalty lie is it with force india or is it with mercedes where does where do force india's loyalties lie you know are they really in a fight with mercedes who supply them with engines and have supplied them with engines for years in fact i think they supply engines and gearboxes to force india um so you know it's 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 business at the end of the day it is business it's sport but it's business as well and you, and you know you'd be naive not to think that these things happen well, it's not very British, though, is it? Come on, we believe in fair play and the spirit of the sport, Trumpets. Yeah, and so that, that kind of gets back to the question that I asked, which is clearly you don't think the cost cap is going to be successful at at narrowing the gap between the midfield and the front runners. Oh, my God, how can we go back to cost caps after all this clandestine engine talk? But okay. Well, no, because this is ultimately part of it. And one of the reasons for that is that the people that make the engines want to make sure that their works teams are always the winners or win as often as possible. So if you so do you think it is something that Formula One should even be trying to do? Question number one. And question number two is if you think it regardless of whether or not you think it is. If you were in charge of making that happen, of narrowing that gap to give more, even if you're not going to change the result, because most of the time the biggest teams will win because they have the most resources. But if you wanted to make it possible for a Williams to be on the podium or 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 for uh, the occasional Force India to nab a podium if there was like extra crashing or weather, if it's not going to be cost caps, what would you do to try and bring the field closer together? Okay, so I didn't necessarily say that cost caps wouldn't narrow the the difference because I think it would. What I'm trying to say is that I think it's almost impossible to put a to put a cost cap in place. They tried and they've tried and they've tried, and I think what's going to affect the big teams is going to affect the little teams, et cetera, et cetera. So it's difficult. What I in to answer the second half of the question, the redistribution of the uh, income to the teams would make a difference. So as we talked about before, Ferrari get their historical 70 million. I think it's more than that. But if Joe says 70, I'll concede to his superior knowledge. Um, if they get 70 million more, they shouldn't. You know, we, they should. OK, everyone should get the same amount. And then if Ferrari or Red Bull manage to get more sponsorship dollars in so they can spend more money, then so be it. But at least you've got a level playing field to start with, um, which is that everyone gets the same amount of money at the start of the season. Um, and then it's up to you to go out there and force India, for example, have got an amazing marketing department. You look at the number of logos that are on that car. There's almost no space left on there whatsoever. So if force India get the same amount of money at the start of the season, they go out there and they sell the hell out of their product and they really, really market it well and they get some great sponsorship money. Then therefore, that's going to push them into a better position um, and it's going to make them more competitive. And then it's all just, it's all, then it's, it's natural. The cream always floats to the top. The more successful a team becomes, the yeah. more that you're going to want, the, the more the better drivers are going to want to come to you, the better technicians are going to want to come to you, the better engineers are going to want to come to you. I mean, that was the other thing that happened to us at Lotus. We lost pretty much anyone of any, no, that's not fair. We lost a lot of our very, very good engineers, yeah. technicians, strategists. I mean, it's, you know, strategy is a huge thing. I mean, you talk about, I don't necessarily agree that you can put a price per second 
per lap, as as I think they were they were saying in that proposal earlier on, about yeah. fifty million per second or whatever. Um, because the strategists and the and the pit stop crews and the you know you can lose two three seconds by um, the front jack mechanic not dropping the jack quick enough. Um, so I mean that's a mechanic's wages. You know it's so it's difficult to put a price on on lap time, but naturally the more successful you get, the better that your team is going to be in general. I mean, when was the last time that Sauber beat Mercedes in time in terms of pit stop team time? Um, you know, because the better pit stop mechanics are at Mercedes or Ferrari or Red Bull. And it's, and it's all self-perpetuating. And like I said before, when we talked about the Mercedes engine mode, the quicker the car goes, the better your aero goes, the better your aero works. So I don't know whether or not if... A Force India sat in pole position and had the clean air at the front of the race. How much slower it's going to be than a Mercedes? And it's hard to tell. We know that Mercedes sometimes struggles when they're in traffic yep. because their aero is not so good when they're sitting behind other cars. So, therefore, so and it's all, again, it's all self-perpetuating. So the more you're sitting in dirty air, the more that your tyres are getting damaged, the more your aero is not working, et cetera, et cetera. Okay, so you've done it again, right? So what you've done now is you've doomed yourself to come back on here several more times because you've just given us a hundred different subjects that we want to drill down on. So you are you are trapped forever on this little podcast, I'm afraid, Matthew Carter. Okay. So, uh, oh, you look genuinely frightened. Uh, <laughs> please don't involve lawyers. Uh, yeah, don't lawyer up. Um, uh, but I'm still getting over the fact that Roman Grosjean was sitting there driving along in a Grand Prix and then he just suddenly gets a completely different race car and he's able to adapt to that and capitalise on it. That That's just an amazing phenomenon and an amazing performance. I, I just can't get over it. That's amazing. I said amazing, right? Amazing. Okay, cool. So we've got some uh, questions from listeners when I said that we were being joined by a former team boss. Uh, Utter Shambles cheekily asks, do you think you could beat Carmen Jorda around a lap of Silverstone? Now, obviously, that's a cheeky question, but there was a Danish test driver who came out um, uh, quite scathingly and suggested that he he was 12 seconds faster on the simulator than Carmen Jordan. I know we touched on it last time uh, you were on, but maybe you could give us a bit of an insight into, you know, some of the motivations. What was going on there? What was going on? So Marco Sorensen was our fourth driver. Um, so he was regularly in the simulator. Um, Esteban Ocon was our third driver at the time. Oh, no, that's not true, actually. Esteban, Esteban was our development driver. Charles Peake was our reserve driver. Marco Sorensen was also our fourth, fifth, whatever reserve driver. And Carmen, we were approached, we were actually approached by um, Carmen's manager who works for Bernie Eccleston. Oh. It's a very, it's a very small world. Um, and he asked us if we would consider giving Carmen a uh, role. I think we called her development driver. I can't remember what her exact title was. Um, and effectively, I sat down with my team and we, we looked at her results, where she'd done what she'd been before, which weren't great, but they weren't that terrible. Um, and we basically talked about it and we decided uh, to see whether or not it would be, I mean, women in motorsport is a, is a big thing. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a lot of mechanics. Uh, one of the best strategists on the, on the grid is actually uh, works at Sauber. Ruth um, is that who you're referring yes, to? Yes, yes. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, we at Lotus, we had uh, two or three mechanics actually working on the cars, you know, in, in the in the pit lane. Um, so there's a lot of women in motorsport, but there's not necessarily, you know, you've got Susie Wolf. But um, and I thought, I genuinely thought it would be a good opportunity to try and. Don't get me wrong. I believed it was going to raise our profile at Lotus as well. It would be surely be good for our sponsors um, because she got a lot of air time. Um, for all the right or the wrong reasons, the depending on which camp you're tend in. to find their way to Miss Jordan, didn't they? Absolutely. Absolutely. So we believed it would be a good, it would be, it, I could see that there'd be no downside to it. I'll be perfectly honest. Um, and that was why we did what we did. Um, yeah, there's lots of, there's lots of rumors that she paid a huge amount of money to come, but she didn't. I can, I can absolutely tell you she didn't. She didn't pay any money to come to be with the team. She didn't give us any money. Um, but she came along. We believed that we could help her to develop her career. 
Um, and as I say, also to promote uh, mm. women in motorsport. But but like a lot I've of managed- drivers, like a lot of drivers, she had contacts, and that's that's true of men and women. They get opportunities due to contacts. Uh, and I just want to give that a bit of credit because I know a lot of people will say that is cynical, and that perhaps her attractiveness w- was something that might be seen as something potentially profitable or good for sponsors or good for image. But I will say. When she was there with my little four-year-old daughter, uh, who I was struggling to convince to go into karting, because she genuinely said to me, no, daddy, racing drivers are boys. And he, she saw her older brother going off karting, and, and to her, that made perfect sense. When we saw Carmen Jorda in a race suit, I was able to point to this glamorous woman and say, no, look, there's a racing driver who's a lady. So I don't want to throw the baby out with the bathwater. I don't think it was all bad for women in motorsport if you look long term and, and you allow shallow dads like me to be able to do that kind of thing yeah exactly exactly and, th- and that's all the reasons that we did it and i managed to avoid the question about the 12 seconds in the simulator and that's <laughs> mainly because I, I honestly don't know I, I i don't know what times were set are you by joe saywooding me are you jace uh, joe saywooding me right now not at all not <laughs> at all i know marco was particularly uh peeved that she was even there when he thought he should graduate because i think she as part of her deal with us she went to quite a lot of the races um and marco didn't um so he wasn't getting the same uh, experiences in the paddock i guess did you suggest to him that perhaps if he had someone who was friends with bernie eccleson managing him he might be able to manage a similar deal i couldn't possibly comment on anything like that <laughs> very well uh yeah but but, uh, but again i mean it's just for for it to stray off of carmen for two seconds so esteban ocon is actually a good example of another driver so he was a genie who owned lotus junior driver uh he came up through the genie ranks um and we had him as our development driver reserve driver um and then we he we basically lost we didn't lose him to mercedes but we had nowhere that he could go um, you know, it's difficult to put someone, I mean, he beat Max Verstappen in Formula 3 by a considerable amount. Um, I, for, off top of memory, I think he beat him by 70 odd points the season before Max came into F1. Um, and they were regularly uh, sort of dueling with each other. But how could I at Lotus justify putting him straight into a F1 seat when we were being paid by sponsors to have a Venezuelan driver? It's difficult, you know, it's, it's, but it's business. It does come down to business. So that is an arbitrage that you do, how much the sponsor brings versus what you might gain in championship points. And sponsors' money seems like to me it's much more, it's much less risky in a lot of ways. Yeah, of course. It, it, there's, a, there's such a fine line with the smaller teams. Um, and again, I know it sounds like I'm, I'm having a love-in with Force India, but Force India manage it very, very well. Williams, I believe, my opinion, is they've got it slightly wrong this season. Um, you know, they've, they've gone, you have to, there's a fine line between the amount of money that comes in from a driver and that driver's sponsors and whether or not that driver is quick and whether or not that driver is going to consistently score points. So go back to Lotus. Pastor Maldonado was not a slow driver. Um, you know, we all know that he won that race in Barcelona for, for Williams. What he wasn't was particularly consistent. Um, and therefore, when we was when we were fighting with Force India in 2015, and it was neck and neck, they had two drivers in Perez and Hulkenberg that were consistent and regularly scoring points. I had one in the Roman and Pasta, who wasn't. So we had one driver fighting against two drivers, and you start to add those things up. The difference at the time, uh, I remember we sat and worked it out between. I have a feeling we finished fifth. The difference between fifth and sixth, or fifth and fourth, was about 10 million dollars in prize money, um, and I don't think it's unknown out there in the world that pasto and his sponsors bring in more than that so how much you know as a business how much more matthew couldn't say as a business it's difficult to to, (laughs) you have to to, it's it's a there's a fine line there you know there's, there's a line between um success and being a business and being yes. a profitable business and you know the money that pastor and his sponsors brought to us enabled me to pay wages enabled me to you know employ the people that we employed it, you know enabled us to go racing go on, Matt. so of course this is leading very rapidly to where exactly did it all go wrong for salbo salber and guido vandergaard then and again i can't comment exactly because i wasn't there you don't know that's okay but no no i i I was i was there i I was in the paddock that australia race when they all turned up to drive the car 
Um, <laughs> and my understanding is that they had signed a contract with, uh, with Guido, um, but they'd been offered more money from somewhere else. Um, Manisha believed that she could negotiate her way out of the Guido van der Gaard, uh, contract and clearly she couldn't or she didn't or it went to court and they they almost put an embargo on them racing i believe in in australia on that race day well, well matthew um, i don't mean to make you feel uncomfortable but i mean you had your own guido van der Gaard moment did you not with charles peak uh not getting enough practice time in 2014 was his claim absolutely true so charles peak so i signed uh, i did the deal with charles Charles, I did the deal with him, um, and he wanted to be in the race car for X number of Friday mornings, um, which was fine. You know, well, from my point of view, 2014, my first season in there, I thought this is going to be fine. So Pastor's contract said that we could not take him out of his car for Friday mornings. Wow. So his, his sponsorship deal was that he had to be in the car. So the only person that we could take out was Roman. So I basically went to Roman and I said, look, you know, we've got this guy coming in he knew Charles um they're, they're both French he knew him reasonably well um and he said okay you know I'm I'm reasonably okay with that it's not ideal but I'm reasonably okay with it and I soon began to realize how important Fridays are to a driver and to a team's weekend because 2014 as again we've touched on many times was terrible for us at Lotus you know the Renault engine was a disaster it was breaking all the time they couldn't get their head around the, it was the, the, as I've said before, the dials on the, on the steering wheel, the different modes and settings that you had to be in were very, very complicated. And I was giving, effectively, a chunk of Roman's race day away to someone who we'd taken because he was trying to get more experience in Formula One, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and his sponsors, Charles' sponsors, were paying money for him to be there yeah. as our third driver. So you have to sort of, you have to weigh everything up. So then we got to a position whereby I've got my team, my guy saying to me, we can't possibly take Roman out of the car. He needs to be in the car. So we were running out of races to get Charles into his required amount of uh, Friday mornings. Um, and it all came to a head in Spa because yeah. uh, there's a bizarre rule in Spa whereby they can... Uh, they can take a claim on your property and they can stop it leaving the country. I think it's been used in other um, so, difficulties uh, with Formula One. So couldn't you just give uh, Charles Peak um, Heike Kovalainen's car on Fridays then? <laughs> or did that not, was that not enough to make it up? <laughs> no, so this was, so that's what I'm saying. So this was, so Friday, so the year that this happened was 2014. So it was the Roman and Pastel. So mm. I've only got two cars. Pastel's right, contract right. says that he's not allowed out of it on the Friday. And Roman was effectively our best driver at the time and the driver that was giving us the best feedback, the driver that was preparing us for the weekend, et cetera, et cetera. And with uh, such, when, when things are bad, Friday mornings become where you can either go really, really wrong or really, really right. And the things that you learn on a Friday in terms of long pay, long run pace, in terms of tire wear, in terms of just a million and one things that the strategists need, they really determine what happens for the rest of the weekend. Um, so yes, long story short, so Charles then wasn't particularly happy, so he got some lawyers involved, and as Roman was collecting his trophy on the podium, we had bailiffs in the garage <laughs> threatening to seize all our uh, goods. Matthew, you've given us uh, a billion more things we want to ask you in a hundred more hours, uh, and we'll take any time with you that we can possibly get. Uh, I've got two more questions, if you think you've got uh, another few minutes, um, which yep. is, A, the Slack group is weird. And since they're our best supporters, they've asked you, what is your favourite kind of Sunday? And they, they'd quite like a quick answer to that. Watching Formula One on the television. Ah, see? No, they meant a, ice cream not, Sundays. I not. knew you'd say something about F1. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> okay. A winning Sunday. Okay. That would have been a good idea. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and secondly, how easy is it to see when you've got two Grand Prix drivers that are racing week in, week out on practice sessions, and then you've got these kids coming through in the simulator. Some of them will get a Friday practice, but you know most of them maybe they won't. How, how easy is it to tell whether you've got a guy on your simulator that is up to speed and as good as your Grand Prix drivers? Um, almost impossible, I would say. I, I don't think i think it's it's very very that's why the friday mornings are used for test drivers that's why the testing days are used for test drivers um yes the simulator gives you an idea to be honest the simulator that we had in endstone was a really really good simulator and we used it more for the setup of the car rather than to see how quick a driver was um they're not used for drivers to practice the circuits they're not used for any it's it's for the setup of the car 
it's so that um, we can we can build in different engine settings so that you know that you know you want x x amount of power as you're coming out of a corner onto a straight or before a straight or after a straight or or however it may work um so it's difficult to judge a young driver in anything other than the real thing it's also almost impossible to know how that driver is then going to react when he's in amongst 20 other cars or 10 other cars or in the middle of the pack so it's really hard and that's kind of where we were with Esteban Ocon so you know had we realized that Esteban was going to be the talent that he is then I'm sure that we would have tried everything in our power to get him into the car. Um, But you just can't tell. You just can't. I mean, it was, there was every indication that he was going to be good. Um, And then he went to Manor and he was, he was okay. He wasn't, I don't think he set the world alight, um, but he was okay. But again, you know, it's difficult when when you're in a a team like Manor, it's difficult for you to shine. Um, and I think that's probably what's going on with um, with Verline at the moment. Um, it's it's difficult for him to shine wherever he is. Had he had that shot at Force India, maybe he would have been in the position that Ocon's in. It, I mean, it's it's so hard. I mean, you look at people like John Eric Verne. You know, he was consistently in or around Daniel Ricciardo's pace when they were when they were in the team together. Um, Ricciardo was promoted, and John Eric Verne was was sent to Coventry. Um, and you know. Is is he a bad driver? Of course, he's not a bad driver. He's still he's still he's still a young guy. I think Joe Sayle was talking about it yesterday. He's he's still a young guy, and you know his Formula One career is effectively is is effectively finished. Um, for want of, I don't know. I think Joe was saying last night that um, that Ricciardo's personality was better than John Eric Verne's, and that was good for Red Bull. So. Did he say that on this show? I was too busy beeping things out at the time and taking <laughs> notes uh, of where the beeps had to go in. And I believe on the video, actually, uh, Steve Amy put engine notes uh, <laughs> over where I had put beeps in the audio, which is entertaining. Uh, but while Matt uh, gets to grips with who has won this week's comment of the week, uh, I must say, when you couldn't get Ocon into the car, you actually had Jolian Palmer doing some Friday morning tests. Uh, and obviously... We as British fans, we had hoped Julian Palmer, Jolian Palmer was, was going to do better than perhaps he has done. But how did he look to you, uh, you know, as a team principal, as a young driver coming in on, on Fridays? Good. Julian, good. Really good. I mean, that's why we promoted, we promoted him to the team. I mean, he was, you know, GP2 champion. He um, was a little bit older, with a little bit more experience than, than some of the really young kids. Um, and yeah, I've I've a lot of time for Julian. I think he had a fairly rough deal um, with Renault. Um, I, I I don't think he ever really got the best chance to prove himself in the same machinery. Um, but it's difficult. I mean, he he had two years in Formula One. You know, he's nobody can ever take that away from him. Um, whether he comes back into the sport again, I don't know. Um, I think he showed enough wheel to wheel action. Um, to prove that he is a very good race driver, um, you know he's he is he's a he's a he's a he's a good, quick, consistent race driver, um, and hopefully he'll he'll continue and go from strength to strength somewhere else. Yeah, it's interesting to get that perspective because I think all people saw was the delta in qualifying, and you know, in the media, in fan sites, on Sky Sports F1 Facebook page, you know, people wrote wrote him off. But a lot of guys on on my panel have been saying, "Wait a minute, you know." there was times when he wasn't getting the same floor. He wasn't getting the same parts. Uh, it's a bit of a shame from a British point of view. The speed, the, the speed of iteration of an F1 car is insane. And I never, ever got used to it in the, in the three years I was there. I mean, the, the parts are being developed at such a rate that it is almost impossible, unless you're a Mercedes, Ferrari, or a Red Bull, or a McLaren, to get the parts to the track and for them to have them on the same car because they're being developed up to the last minute. Um, so at Endstone, so we would regularly only have one of the new st- style of floor. So inevitably with us, it would go to Roman um, and not to Pasta. And therefore, you'd see a delta there as well. And Pasta was always compl- would always complain about the same thing. You know, he didn't have the same car. He didn't have the same bits on the car. I think at the front running teams, they generally do have the same. I think they've got the money and the budget to get the same parts on the car so that the two, the two drivers have the same machinery. Um, but again, not always. I think did Bottas not have a new engine in one of the recent races, and Lewis didn't, or Lewis chose to go back to the old engine. Or um, so it's difficult, even within the same team, to judge two drivers. Difficult. We've run an hour and two minutes, uh, Matthew. You've been incredibly generous with your time. Before we close out, though, Matt, why don't you tell us who has comment of the week? In the live chat room, thank you for keeping us company on this live stream. If you listening at home to the podcast version want to join the chat room why not go to youtube and subscribe to missed apex podcast 
on there. Click the little bell and you will get a notification every time we go live. Matt, who's done it for you in the chat room today? Well, it was it was one and done, but there was a flurry at the last minute. We had Artemy EX over the length of this podcast. I learned that caveat sounds a lot like caveat. I know people were asking for your opinion on Kvyat, and I've added that to the long list of things we want to ask Matthew Carter before the end of the season. Indeed, we have Dom Byrne. Julian, Julian, does it matter then or now? Oh my gosh, though, it does matter because Jeansy gives me so much abuse week after week if I pronounce Julian even slightly incorrectly. And at the top of the show, we had Christopher Fonseca getting in with, will Matt be swearing as much as Joe did yesterday? No, no one can do that. It's not possible. But I have saved the best for last based on your very own quips, Panners. Peter Yannick, CIA is American organization. Liberty bought F1. Coincidence? I don't think so. I love a good conspiracy theory. Let's (laughs) give that this week's comment of the week. Feel free to add that to your Twitter bio uh, and make sure you let us know if and when you've done it. Uh, Matthew, uh, where can people find you? Do, do you do you court people's attention on the internet? Uh, no, we discussed that last week. No, yeah, I'm not. Well, I thought you <laughs> might have changed your mind media, so. by then. Come on, you've got a Twitter account. No, you, no. Could, you could open it up and embrace the Missed Apex audience. Maybe. <laughs> or maybe not. We'll work on him, kids. We'll work on him. Uh, Matthew, thank you very, very much for your time. Uh, It's been an absolute pleasure to get that insight. And hopefully uh, we can get more before the end of the season. Guys, if you're listening, make sure you catch us at 8 p.m. GMT to catch our Brazilian race review. Until we meet again, remember that wounds heal, chicks dig scars, and glory lasts forever. This was Missed Apex with an XF1 boss. Come on, Mr. Carter. Even Joe rocked out to the music yesterday. It, it, it happened. Uh, how, come on, be, be honest with us. How nerdy did we all look reacting to your, your inside quips? Because, you know, mouths aghast uh, on occasion. You, you must be used to this. Tell me you don't dine out on this kind of inside knowledge when you're in a local Montreal pub. Honestly, and I keep saying it with you, I end up, if I go, if I'm at a dinner party or whatever, and sometimes I just feel as if I've dominated the whole conversation because anyone that's into <laughs> Formula One suddenly starts asking questions. Yeah, but, but you were apologizing. You, you were looking at us through the Skype apologetically, like, oh, I need to stop talking now. No, 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 you absolutely don't. <laughs> that's, that's why you're here. Uh, but yeah, I suppose yeah. if there's people at your dinner party that, that aren't interested in F1, it uh, sucks yeah, exactly. to be them. Yeah. But that's their fault. They're my wrong. wife. My wife's heard all these stories many times. She's bored. She gets bored out of her brain by them. My wife doesn't even know what I do for a living. She doesn't know my. Job. <laughs> she has no idea. And and if I dare mention the podcast, she goes, oh, her eyes roll. Oh, that thing you do in the shed. Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowl and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowl and Branch sheets get softer with every wash start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come try their sheets with a 30 night guarantee plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com code buttery exclusions apply see site for details here's a cool fact a crocodile can't stick out its tongue another cool fact you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.